I'm Robin Amler of IBS Intelligence. You're listening to the IBS iViews podcast. With me is Rob O'Farrell, CTO of IDPAL. Now, despite frequent incidents of data breaches, many people are still unaware or at best ambivalent about what organizations hold their data. So we are going to be investigating the concept of self-sovereign identity. So first of all, Rob, what is self-sovereignty? The idea behind self-sovereignty is about putting control of your data back in your own hands. So rather than letting central authorities or businesses control what data comes in, how it's held, how long it's held, how it's permissioned, how it's tracked, it's about putting that control back in the hands of the person who actually owns that data to allow each one of us to control who can use our data when and for what. Two things I want to say to that. One is we've had data protection up to a point through legislation in a lot of jurisdictions. Obviously, I'm thinking particularly in the UK, but it's prevalent around the world. So what more needs to be done? Because something obviously does, because the second point is, boy, has that ship ever sailed? Well, this is it. So if you look at the likes of the GDPR, UK GDPR, and the various data protection standards uh, around the world, what they have put in in principle is what self-sovereign identity is trying to do in technology. So this idea that GDPR and other data protection standards uh, espouse that you as an individual should be able to give or withdraw consent for the use of your data, that there you know, obviously there's other reasons for accessing data, but self-sovereign identity tries to actually put in place a technological infrastructure where there's a there's an actual connection there. It's not just reliant on what people say they do. It's not reliant on your memory. I couldn't tell you how many companies have my identity data. I do it for bank accounts, for large purchases, for all sorts of things. It's not possible to track. Self-sovereign identity makes it easier to control and track who has that data. And I suppose one level easier to monetize because there is value in my identity online. 100% true. I can't tell you how often now when we are speaking with companies that are looking for identity verification or onboarding processes in the broader sense, it's unbelievable how often it comes up that people say, okay, but how many people do you have pre-verified? Because the difference that makes, take for example, gift cards. In a lot of the world now, gift cards, you have to go through identity verification before you can use them because of money laundering. Now, imagine you're at the till in the store and suddenly you now find out you need your passport or your driving license and a liveness test and a facial test. And oh, like you just don't have the time in that high pressure situation. But if you're pre-validated, that can be a very simple biometric test and you are able to go ahead and spend. From a financial services perspective, this has already been recognized that identity is important with open banking standards and what you can do with open banking if you have your pre-registered identity. Absolutely. And 
Oh, while open banking has helped to support the portability of data from one place to another, and therefore that can be used for verification processes, it stops a few steps short of what you actually need for identity verification. The way I always simply put it is it's about something you have, something you know, and something you are. So you can have an ID, you can know where you first went to school or the name of your first pet, but the something you are, your your face, your fingerprints, that stuff that's harder to fake, open banking can't support that kind of data transfer. So the self-sovereign identity is taking that to the next level and bringing the portability to all industries, not just those associated with banking. But how do you take back control? As I said earlier, and I said it half jokingly, but that ship has sailed. People don't realise just how much of their personal information is now online and is available to anybody who wants to spend a few seconds, not even a few minutes, a few seconds finding it. That's absolutely right. And there's no point in pretending that the likes of self-sovereign identity is going to put the genie back in the bottle about the data that's already out there. Your data that's out there is there. We need to accept that much. But then there's two things we can do to make sure that that's not a problem. Firstly, adopting solutions like this will help to prevent further data leakage and improve the management going forward. But the second thing is to make sure that everybody does move to these robust standards for being able to use that data. I mentioned the something you are. When people buy data off the internet, they're buying card data, they're buying your personal information, they're using it to apply for loans. But that all depends on having accurate data, not on proving that you are the true owner of that data. So it's having that true owner of the data part, the something you are, that's absolutely necessary to make sure that the data that's already out there doesn't come back to harm you. And for that, we actually need all industries to start adopting that safety measure, that little bit of friction to protect all of us. I do believe in a little bit of friction myself. The The idea that in a couple of clicks, I can either borrow money or buy something, sometimes just does need to be slowed down and a little bit of think time applied. But can a self-sovereign identity truly work in a digital world? And what happens if I grant somebody access to my identity? Is it like Mission Impossible? Does it dissolve in 30 seconds after they've had it? Because they've got that information, what's to stop them to continuing to use it? This is the rub. There's several aspects to how this is going to evolve. And to be perfectly honest, to anybody who thinks we can turn around next week and say, do you know what? We have this brilliant technology called self-sovereign identity. Let's just do it. It's not going to work that way because we're not launching this in a vacuum. There's regulations and laws in every industry where there's certain data that people are required to keep for reasons other than whether you want them to have it or not. And so trying to say that all industries could just suddenly adopt this overnight, it's not going to happen. And not only that, but uh, what people are going to want to do that? And what are we going to say? They said, do you know what? We promise you your future onboardings will be easier if you give us all your data. Why would I want to do that? I, um, I have no motivation to share all of my data in those circumstances. 
So we have to look at a very piecemeal approach. Start with when does the person who owns the data want to share it? I need something. So now I'll share my data. Well, now that you've seen the pain of that, would you like to set up a self-sovereign identity profile to make that easier in the future? Now you're dealing with a bank. This is someone that you've established trust with for years. So let's start using it within that context where there's already established trust. And you can learn trust in the self-sovereign identity framework itself. Then expand that out to communities. So all banks that are under the same regulation, we've figured out all the challenges, we've established trust, we can expand it industry by industry until eventually you go out to the world. That way you're actually cognizant of what everybody needs out of it and only ask them for things at the time when it's actually of value to them. Can I turn this conversation on its head? We've been talking about it from the point of view of the individual and what self-sovereign identity means to the individual. If we turn it on its head and bring it back to, you mentioned banking there, bring it back to banking, what's the benefit, is there a benefit to the institution of adopting this kind of approach as well? Is there something within it that you can sell to an institution that says, you're worried about fraud, here's a way of stopping it, for example? Absolutely. The fraud example is a perfect one. Let's say you have your bank account and now you need to transfer £10,000 or something, of uh, some large amount to buy a car or make some important purchase. Do you want to have to go through, have you got your passport? Have you got your driving license? That's more friction than people are going to be able to take in a scenario like that. Now, you say to them, with this solution, you simply look at the camera. It does a liveness test to prove that you're there at the time. It does a facial match to match you to your existing profile. And now you have all of the same assurance that you had when you did that complete onboarding in the first place, but in seconds like even as quick as a second that is a massive way to prevent fraud a second huge value and again this is one that more and more people are asking about let's say you've just established a a new bank and you believe you've got a better offering than everybody else if everybody that you get to your app or your site sees a process that they're going to be two or three or four days getting through They may just go, you know, it's a pain going down to the branch, but it's easier than this. And so being able to offer people, well, you did that onboarding for your utility bill last week. Do you just want to use that data again and get your new bank account in seconds? Focus on what the relationship with them, with that new bank is, rather than focusing on what you need to prove about yourself. I will just say one word that that does concern me when you say I sit in front of the camera and there's a liveness check. What about deep fake? So there is a fabulous standard called iBeta Level 2. It's in a field called PAD, uh, Presentation Attack Detection. And to get certified on iBeta Level 2, you have to prove that you can detect 100% of presentation attacks like deep fakes, like 3D masks, like videos of the original person. So when you're doing that certification as the likes of IDPAL's solution is certified, you uh, have to give a team of specialized hackers funds and devices and access to your platform to try and trick it in any way they can. 
And if you fail even one test, you don't get certified. So there is actually really, really strong protections out there for likeness detection now. All right, we've talked about this subject. How do we get it adopted? Where does the adoption come from? Is it signing up individuals? Is it signing up companies? For me, and certainly the way that I'm going about doing it at the moment is actually, funnily enough, quite similar to the um, interview that I uh, heard on your podcast uh, in the last few weeks there with uh, Henrik uh, from uh, Dreams Technology, where he was speaking about identifying the motivators that people have. It's the same thing here. When is somebody motivated to share their data? It's when they need something. So let's not try and force people to give over data at a time when it's not actually worth it to them. So if you can imagine, you've signed up for a new bank account and at that moment, we ask you, would you like to avoid this next time? Click here and no further steps will create a self-sovereign identity profile for you. Then you start to introduce scenarios in which they can use that in trusted environments. And again, just bearing in mind people's motivations, do it where there's already trust. Don't just make people go, oh, the, the technology is brilliant. Believe us. Give us all your data. Let us give it to everybody else so you can trust us. That's just not going to work. It's not worked with any technology in the past. So let's learn from that and take people on a journey. Thank you very much, Rob O'Farrell, Chief Technology Officer of IDPOW.